0: Welcome to episode two of the We've Got Issues podcast, the one where we introduce our first guest.
1: I'm Esther Dedal. I'm Sarah Stevens. And today we are going to be discussing Kyle Baker's Nat Turner with help from our very special guest, Leanne. Hi. Um, Leanne is a supervisor here at the David Wilson Library yeah. and she is also a Ph.D. Scholar. <laughs> the title of her thesis is Representations of Matrifocality in Contemporary Anglophone Caribbean Literature which is absolutely fascinating. I can personally testify to Leanne's genius. She once spent 20 minutes talking to me about math and fractals in her thesis and I was like, this is literature though. How math? Do math? I don't know. Um, so Lianne is a certified genius and she is here to help us out. I thought for today's episode,
0: we'd kind of start off in a similar way to what we did last time with me, asking you why you chose this novel
1: as this month's recommendation,
0: and then going from there.
1: All right well, um, so it's the recommendation for October, which is Black History Month in the UK. So we wanted something that discusses black history. Mm. Um, something that talks about these themes, that brings these themes forward, and to just kind of see the response that we get from people because I feel like there's a lot of black history that we don't know. I know that in a talk by Akala, he mentioned that black history was originally meant to be about everything about black history outside of slavery. But then I read Nat Turner and I think there's a lot of slave history that we don't know because it doesn't fit what we like to think slave Mm. history was about or was like.
2: Yeah, I think... Akala's point was kind of that we use the month of black history to start uncovering lost histories. So a lot of black history in the mainstream sort of starts with slavery, which is an issue because we know that African history pre kind of colonialism, pre the colonial encounters, super interesting and vast and varied and it goes on for ages and had incredible civilizations and did amazing things. But I think in this kind of that spirit of retelling these lost stories, I think Nat Turner still kind of works because it's kind of similar to like the Haiti story in that we don't necessarily get to hear that much about Haiti and Haiti's history because they won, (laughs) you know what I mean, like, they did did that, they got their freedom, and again, I think with Nat Turner, Nat Turner is an example of the slave who did not endure, and the slave who took it into his own hands, and so not many people would know about this story, but it's such an incredible story, Um, and it's really cool that you're
1: looking at this one. I mean, I think it's definitely a narrative that makes us question and there are parts that makes us make us uncomfortable, I think. Yeah. Which absolutely. is always the best part of, of literature when mm. it makes us uncomfortable, when it makes us think. So Sarah, as like a very new person to reading comics and all this mm-hmm. kind of thing, what did you think of uh, Nat Turner?
0: That's like a big question. It's a big question. <laughs> Just throw me right in. Sorry. I go was gonna it. say kind of go back to the whole the not being well known part because I had no idea about this particular story. So that was interesting for me in in that sense and then doing my usual thing which is reading a thing and then being like I need to research everything about it now and realizing <laughs> I couldn't do that in two weeks that's just not possible so I did a little bit of background reading but I just realized that how much I didn't know and how much like in school we aren't taught and I think that was probably the main thing that I took away from me. It is
1: it is definitely something that you wouldn't hear about in school it's not something that I heard about in school either the the education in in belgium about the slave trade i think is very sort of traditional Mm. very much it was england america and africa that was like the the slate the triangle and that's kind of and they kind of skim over that and then they mention the congo very very briefly and then they skim over that as well and that's kind of um that's kind of where it stays i think unless you Mm. go digging unless you go looking or unless you have people who put in the work to write these new yeah. versions of, of the narrative. Yeah, cuz
2: I I saw at the the back of um this graphic novel that there is some questions. So obviously it's meant as a learning resource because it's got questions that you can bring to school-aged I don't want to say children cuz children probably should not be reading this cuz it's incredibly graphic, but I I'm, I'm assuming <laughs> that it's like made for kind of like secondary school yeah, students, kind of. which is which is cool. But um yeah, the the education system in the UK is kind of glossed over. Mhm the history of slavery as well. I remember that we touched on sort of the slave trade once when I was in school. It was probably in when I was about 12 mm-hmm. and it was Black History Month and they did one really dry lesson about the slave trade and, you know, the triangular trade and that
1: was it. Mm. Yeah, a very kind of almost sanitized version, I yeah. think, of that history. Whereas I think Nat Turner is very graphic. Mm. Um, so, Let's kind of open up and, t- and talk about that a little mm-hmm. bit, about that sort of the, the graphicness of not just the violence, but um, something that I read in an article um, written by Michael A. Cheney, was this um, focus that Carl Baker has on facial expressions uh, and facial mimicry and how they zoom in on that. So if if we were to turn to, say, page 47, this is the section where people have Mm. been driven onto the slave ships as cargo, they're chained, and you have these sort of very accusative eyes staring out at you from the page. Mm. And I think there is quite a few moments where the Mm. eyes are the focal point of the artwork. So you have, like, in 43, again, these very big, round eyes staring out from a very thin face. And I thought that was very interesting because the eyes are so prominent, but they don't necessarily make eye contact or anything like mm. that. So it's kind of, are they looking to contact us, looking at us from yeah. from the text, or I don't know. I thought I thought that was very interesting. Creates a sort of intimacy.
2: Yeah, I mean, I'm thinking back to kind of research I've done on neo slave narratives. Mm-hmm. And there is this need to add subjectivity to this to the story of slavery. So when we're taught slavery in school, we're kind of given this sanitized version. Mm -hmm. But that sanitized version talks us through statistics and figures. We're told that this many slaves were transported or this many enslaved Africans were transported, that this many people probably died. And these are numbers that go into the millions. And so it's because it's so vast. It's almost impossible to start considering or imagining what that actually meant for the people involved. And so what neo-slave narratives do is pick a person to kind of zoom in on, to make you kind of understand in a more visceral sense precisely what the horrors are. So What I imagine Carl Baker is, is trying to do is bring to light subjectivities, is bring to light lost histories. All of the faces that you see are faces that have been lost in history because they, they have no narratives.
1: Yeah, I I think that's a really good, really good point. Mm. Because I think there is something very visually arresting in the art and it it gives that sort of subjectivity to it, like you say. Something
0: that I said about the art, I think, when I met up with you the other day was that I was really um, confused by the way that they've got all this lovely, lavish art and then the text is very blocky and not what I was expecting from other graphic novels I've read Mm -hmm. where it kind of is incorporated into the pictures and things it still felt, felt very separate from an aesthetic point of view I was like I'm not sure I like this <laughs> but then we had a little conversation about that which maybe is worth going into now oh, yeah. about um you know
1: why that might be right so yeah um the the text narrating the artwork is the historical confessions of Nat Turner there's a lot of debate on this text mm-hmm. as far as I understand it because it's obviously it wasn't written by Nat Turner himself as far as we know if we were to trust the text as a historical document, Tom Thomas R. Gray, who was a lawyer at the time, wrote down mm. the confessions based on Nat Turner's testimonial. And Thomas uh, R. Gray copyrighted the text on 10 November 1831, the day before Nat Turner's execution. So there's definitely like a, a capitalist yeah. motive <laughs> driving this record. So I guess it is, it is a, a highly contentious document in some cases, mm-hmm. in the fact that can we trust that it is Nat Turner's word, mm. is it Gray's word? And there's little historical evidence to suggest either way because Nat Turner rebellion was so contentious that they kind of tried to bury it, mm. as far as I'm aware. But I think if we were to take it as Nat Turner's own words, which I think Carl Baker encourages us to do, it very much highlights the art in ways that a traditional narrative wouldn't have I think Mm. personally.
2: See I have (laughs) (laughs) an opposite point of view I think
0: that um, because of who it was written by and the fact that if you think about who it's written for Mm. who was Grey's audience Mm. and it's going to be probably other white people Mm. and the words are quite dry and I think quite aggressive Mm. and do not I don't think warm you necessarily to as much as the pictures do and I think that there's a contrast between what the words are saying and what the pictures are doing because the The words kind of very dryly lay out stuff, whereas the pictures illustrate it emotionally, Mm. I guess. Mm. Mm. And that's where I sort of started changing my mind a little bit about the contrast in the art and the pictures was that actually that's a deliberate thing of saying these
2: are two discrete pieces of work
1: here. Mm. Hmm. How, how did you experience that contrast, Anne?
2: I, I was kind of like reading text because I, I, I'm I not a, a scholar of graphic novels, so I'm very much kind of like text-oriented. Mm. And so the text was kind of like helping me to sort of understand a bit more the mm-hmm. illustration. They are incredibly dry, that sort of like the language used, yeah. I do agree. Because I knew that this had come from his confession, but it just felt very, it felt very necessary mm. to have snippets from that so-called official documentation alongside mm. the images. And I guess because the story of Nat is almost unbelievable, mm. right? So I guess it's kind of necessary that we have those blocks of dry confession just to kind of reiterate the fact that we're talking about history and not fiction.
1: Mm. Yeah, no, I, I think that's a very valid point um, that I, I hadn't thought about, because it mm. is kind of, especially to, to a modern audience mm. who know the statistics and the figures, like you say, it seems pretty far-fetched fantastical yeah. that this could have happened yeah. and then we have a real document a historical document that no matter who it was written by solidifies the fact that this happened it mm. was real and I think if we I mean I, I personally think that if you read it part of it should be understood as Nat Turner's own words not everything but there's anecdotal stories yes. that Nat Turner tells like this idea that he had visions mm. of, him, of himself or of his mother on the slave ship before he was born. I think, whether or not that is true, I can't say, obviously. But I think it's interesting that he would kind of promote that idea of himself as having visions by God, as being sent by God, mm. as a way to galvanise his fellow slaves into rebellion. Mm. I don't know, I've not, I've not read something quite like this before. Um, i think it's either like politically incredibly cunning or i don't know i don't, I don't know what else i mean, I mean I, i'm inclined to think that it's like a conscious tactic on his part consciously portraying himself as some kind of christ figure to galvanize the movement yeah to be a figure of hope because it seems to me that mac turner would be smart enough to understand that people need a symbol yeah sometimes more than yeah. anything else
0: the religious side of things is maybe one of the Harder things that I find to kind of get my head around mm. because I'm not a religious person myself. Mm-hmm. Um, so anytime I kind of come up against that really intense belief, yeah. it's quite hard to sort of put yourself in that place. He kind of starts off. I think there's a part where he actually he's he's telling the other people like you should like bow down to your masters, and then he has the vision, and that's what changes his mind. I guess from my point of view, I'm like, why would you need God to tell you that? Mm.
2: I think historically it, it was it's just different then. Yeah. So I think like plantations were highly religiously driven mm. and religion was kind of weaponised on plantations. So it was, it, you know, I mean, we have evidence of there is such a thing as the slave's Bible. So they would edit the Bible to kind of make slaves compliant. So sort of lines in the Bible, mm. such as kind of the meek shall inherit the earth yeah. were fed to slaves so that mm. they would just play their role. With the idea that in heaven you shall seek your reward, I think because of that kind of context, it, it makes Nat Turner's kind of religious goings on a bit more plausible, and it would make sense then that people would mm-hmm. kind of latch onto this Christ-like figure who has visions, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, because yeah. of that.
1: Mm-hmm. So yeah, I, I think that's interesting. Like that you, you use the phrase weaponization. I think that's really really interesting. Cause I hadn't thought of it that way, mm-hmm. and this sort of. Um, Cause I think nowadays we just call it like brainwashing or something, like yeah. being in a cult or something like that. But then this sort of idea of it being very conscious, very conscious weaponization yeah uh, like so. editing the bible i mean that's definitely yeah. if you're actually religious you don't do that if you actually believe that's the word of god you don't do that it's yeah. a conscious way to control the masses
2: but we i mean we know that the the bible has been edited which is why we um, have the king james version that's true we, have this we version, actually talked about this in the last
0: podcast and we absolutely end
2: up in this place <laughs> in
0: every single thing we do but yeah we
2: did talk a little bit about exactly. all that stuff um and yeah. can we ever know and if it's if men who are by their very nature, imperfect, are the ones editing the Bible. Then, do you know what I mean? I think, like, mm. just hold. <laughs> this is true. Yeah. This is true.
1: But I feel like, um, oh yeah, editing the Bible with a very clear political, social agenda in this yeah. case. Then that's interesting. Because it, because knowing that, it kind of in my in in my head then flips that scene that you mentioned where yes. he's initially like, we mustn't, we, we must follow the Bible. We must listen to our masters. And then flipping it and being like, actually, I've had a vision and that's not true. That, again, makes for a very clear kind of justification for why people would would believe that. And i just yeah, flat on yeah. to that because he's given them, he's given people a clear, direct kind of answer to the mm. question. But why should we believe you when the Bible and everything that we know yeah. says that we should be... Mm
0: unique I think that Nat Turner is a book that definitely benefits from a second read once you've done some research <laughs> because the more that you read mm. the more that you read around it the more that everything like even now I'm sort of like well that's another bit of information I didn't know this is a bit of information I didn't know and then once you read it again mm. it brings everything to the surface in a different light because like I saying I was struggling with those religious ideas and once you kind of put that into context mm. it it makes things easy to understand, mm. but there is just so much in there
1: yeah. that's kind of just yeah. in yeah. the surface. I think. I, I think it is incredibly um, well researched. Uh, I, I yeah. think because as well because you, you mentioned it has a section in the back um, where you can ask questions and where the book kind of encourages you to think because it is meant to be a teaching tool, yeah, kind absolutely. of as a way into slave storytelling. I guess, but then it is very different from traditional neo slave narratives. Is that correct? As far as I understood it, because um, some of the reading that I did, mm. which was from a comic scholar's point of view, so I, right. I, I, I don't know, but but they, they made a point that the violence is new. Is it not? Well, Am I wrong?
2: The reason why I'm laughing is because like I've read Marlon James, and Marlon okay. James um, has a novel called The Book of Night Women, which is like one of the greatest books I've ever read, and I would encourage everybody to read that. That is a near-sleeve narrative that's set on a plantation, and Marlon James is incredibly good at writing violence. You could almost accuse him of being gratuitous with it, but he's not because mm. he's just incredibly skilled. But that that book is fairly new. I think that was published in 2008. And I don't think that I've come across another, slave, another neo-slave narrative that is as violent <laughs> as that. Uh. So it is possible that kind of like this sort of um, look into violence is kind of like a new shift.
1: A new trend within, within what we, what, what we yeah. would call the ESO narratives. narrative. Yeah. That's interesting, I think.
0: Not going to lie, the violence is something that definitely found difficult to read mm. right. um, from all sides. I guess it's just...
1: It's very graphic. Like yeah. let, Let's just be clear. It's definitely not for the faint of hearted, I think. No. Um, I have read more graphic stuff, but that's because comics are filthy. <laughs> and... Uh, Having been a comic scholar, like there, there, there's certain strange within comics that are that are really nasty, um. So I, I have read worse, but if you're not used to reading violence, yeah, then this is very new, very shocking, mm-hmm. um, because it does get graphic at certain bits.
0: I think what really struck me was the fact that it's such a contrast to say what we know from peaceful protests in the civil rights movement and then this is the exact extreme opposite yeah and it's not something we're used to seeing like no explicit violence against white people and Mm. how we deal with feelings around that yeah and it's difficult.
2: <laughs> mm. And I guess that's one of the reasons why Nat Turner is not a figure that we hear about that yeah. often. It's exactly the same reason again why we don't hear about Haiti mm. that often because yeah. these are revolutions that were won by violence and mm. that it, it that can be a really uncomfortable reality to deal with but it's reality nonetheless. Mm. Yeah, you
1: know? I mean we definitely live in an era where we glorify for instance martin luther king yeah. uh, who's also de-radicalized massively yes. um, in white in white media and so the idea of, of non-violent peaceful protest is romanticized as being always righteous as being always successful yeah. even though we know for a fact that that is not true because we wouldn't be living in the world that we live in today if non-violent protest was always successful and always on the side of history. So I think the violence in that in Baker combined with kind of living in this era where yeah. it very much yeah, you very much have an argument that violence is never the answer. There's a definite contrast there. Yeah. Because on the one hand, I don't think you can say, you know, bloody revolt is always necessary. But on the other hand, you can't say that, that it's never necessary. No. And I think Matt Turner definitely, in very specific ways, makes a case for this idea that you need to rise up and defeat the oppressor, Mm. no matter who they are, and strike.
2: And, I mean, I guess that's why there is perhaps a shift in neo-slave narrative Mm. discourse towards violence. It is um, as a reaction to this kind of uh, whitewashed idea that peaceful protest is the only way to get anything. I partly think that that's maybe one of the reasons why in schools any sort of... um, education around um, black history mm-hmm. usually tends to focus on the civil rights movement and sit-ins mm-hmm. and Martin Luther King and marches etc because that's pretty much all I learned. We're, we're kind of just trying to again just kind of whitewash history but also try to mould how we might react in the future Yeah, because that's how you get what you want peacefully mm-hmm. actually Nat Turner
1: tells us otherwise. Na- Nat Turner does tell us otherwise
2: hmm.
1: and I think I mean not that I'm you know, advocating that we should overthrow the government and eat the rich or something. But if you look at today's world, where there is a significant amount of what I would say, peaceful protests, yeah. and very little response, people talk, 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 and talk while atrocities are being committed yeah. everywhere and on the mm. planet. Like we've been, as collectively as a people, have been defanged. I can feel the little, like, kernel of awkward
0: settling in my chest because oh, I, right. like, I find it, like, really hard to talk, talk about. about. And I'm like, I've got that thing where, you know, where you can feel the words wanting to form but not mm. quite getting there. And, and I do find it hard because there's a part of me that's but why do we have to be violent? Like, why? Yeah. But then also that kind of part of me being like, oh, but I, I don't know, like trying to reconcile those two things mm-hmm. of reality versus yeah. Yeah. what you want to happen.
1: I, I think this idea of, like, why do we have to be violent? I think that's an interesting question. And I counter that with why should we have to be violent in the sense that you know, so Holocaust and internment camps, and we all said never again for 50 years, and they are happening now. Mm. And that happened because, not because we chose to not be violent, but because we chose to be complacent. Yes, and because so. we have nonviolent tools in our possession and people are not using them. Mm. There is a social power that people are not utilizing. Like people can impeach Trump and they've chosen not to. And people are not holding those people who should be impeaching him accountable. Mm. And it it's this case of if the majority stands silently by, Mm -hmm. the minority doesn't have a choice but to be violent at some point, I think. And it's a violence that is in a way thrust upon them Mm. because don't have a, a I Do where it yeah. gets
0: difficult for me is it's like how far how far along do you leave it mm. who gets involved in that violence because say for instance for me the bits that i find really hard with the violent acts against children yeah yeah
1: um
0: and i think most people would because who is responsible how mm. far down the line do you go and that's where it gets really muddy yes and everything gets a little bit unclear about okay yeah that person i can i can see that that person probably deserves it but does
1: their child because there is a a child who gets straight up decapitated isn't there that's
0: the bit that really like he was like said hello earlier on in the thing and he's just and he goes mm. to say hello again and then straight up his head
1: yeah so I think that's definitely something that is meant to shock the reader mm. it's meant to shock yeah, us yeah I
2: think we're supposed to just be uncomfortable for the entirety of yeah. the duration of this graphic novel I think that's entirely the point I think the point is that in when it comes to slavery morality is a very mucky thing. Mm. I think that's kind of the point of all of the violence is that what is moral mm. in an immoral environment.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Where do the lines right? anymore exactly, exactly. <laughs> where where do they get drawn? Because this whole idea of if they go low, we go high, if that's if that becomes untenable, mm. if the reality of the world does not allow such a philosophy to survive, how low do you go? Mm. As I always, think yeah. the
0: interesting thing about the effects of the rebellion, or what happened next, is that it did, in that Turner's rebellion did contribute towards sort of the civil war coming about, but it also, in the immediate future, resulted in a backlash that caused the deaths of people that weren't involved. Mm, and mm. If, you, if you do go hard, it's not all going to be sorted and done, and it's not just mm. a case of it being, mm. he did this thing and he sacrificed himself and that was easy now. It's like, no, it leads to more pain before it gets better. Yeah, it's yeah. even like really pushing through that
2: difficult bit. That's always the way, though, isn't it? Yeah. What are the yeah.
1: cycles of violence? Yeah. That's the question I mm. think the book ans- asks as well. How far do we let the cycle go on? Or in what way can we resist that? Has the cycle stopped? No, in, in, in certain ways it definitely has not. Absolutely not. It, it's, like a, it's kind of like a Gaia, like it kind of gets better, but cycles come back again and yeah, again and again.
2: Yeah. I don't think that the cycle has has stopped i don't think even that it's got better mm. i just think that it changed mm. it's, I, I honestly yeah that's fair i think that the kind of the, the idea that a nat turner could exist today is entirely tangible
0: if that nat turner did exist today how do you think they would be viewed oh that's
1: interesting well it's very interesting because i am um... I read an article by a chap called Tim. I've very obviously misspelled his name on my notes and will put his name uh, <laughs> on the little on the show notes. But he talks about how um, certain academics have analysed Carl Baker's Nat Turner in light of 9-11 and talks right. about the religious fanaticism yeah. okay, that's in, um, in the book and links it to... Yeah. Terrorism and then freely acknowledges that that in and of itself is a problematic thing to do because obviously you can't straight up compare Mm. uh, someone who's rebelling against slavery versus Someone who flew a plane to the Twin Towers and all this. But on the other hand He says it is a useful way to think about both the glorification of religious feather
2: Mm.
1: in specific strata of American society and it's complete demonization Mm. Um, which I thought was interesting. Um, there were bits I didn't understand because that's not really my wheelhouse. It got very far into that kind of thing. But I think it was interesting to to, to think about.
2: When I think of, like, a modern-day Nat Turner-like figure, mm. I can't help but think, and I actually want to kick myself because, like, no, but I just think of Killmonger... <laughs> to an extent. And mm. I do want to just kick myself because, no, Killmonger is just wrong, right? But his anger is righteous. But his anger is valid. Yes. And I feel like his anger comes from... His anger is part of that cycle of violence mm. from the days of Turner. Like, that's where it's kind of come from. Yeah. So
1: he's kind of... He, he very clearly makes that link at the end of Black exactly. Panther. But the film relates to the state of black people in the yes. world constantly, obviously. But at the very end, um, Killmonger mentions his people who threw themselves off the ships and fell into the ocean yeah and which we see
2: um, in uh, this and what's what's really interesting just about this novel really quickly is that when um i got given this graphic novel jessica was like oh the first page i opened it up to was a picture of like a baby being fed to a shark and so then i ended up just randomly turning a page and that was the same page that i went on i was like oh my god and then hannah also did the same thing, and it just like it just so happened that she also opened up the page on this, and it's really interesting that we were all just like shocked. But actually, when you read that, you realise that that was an act of liberation, and it's really interesting how kind of like your reading of that particular page of this novel shifts, like mm. complete one eighty turn. It's
1: victory, isn't it? Yeah. I, I think one of the articles that I read talked about a dignity so vast that it preferred death over slavery. Yeah because um, it is a victorious moment and um, so there's a close-up of, of that the parents face and there's a is it, is it anger is it horror no it's, it's a sort of a determination mm. almost in that close-up but it is so. definitely an interesting scene that, that speaks to yeah. you yeah
0: yeah oh absolutely yeah like I think you just flipped over one of the other pages there of the close-up of the child yes. crying as well, yeah. and it, it does give you quite a visceral reaction. Which... There's a lot
1: of children in this, isn't there? Yeah. Like, just in general, yeah. a lot of yeah. it's like children. It's like, we're not going to let
0: you get away with this, like, easy kind of decisions about who's right and who's wrong here. We're really going to make yeah. you struggle with this yeah, mm. and think really hard about it. Because if someone did, like, say, imagine someone did today, do something like that, and it did involve the killing of children, how would we,
1: how would we even... But I think, yeah, the, the violence in, in, in that Turner is very visceral, and there are a lot of children in it, and how children, a lot of children who die. So, like, mm. there's a, a sort of comment on how violence impacts children the most, because they either grow up to be violent... Uh, violent adults basically or they die like there's Mm. no
0: Mm. one of the things that I wondered about was whether having experienced the kind of violence that he would have from a young age would that impact on the way you viewed violence against others so thinking about like PTSD type things Mm. and how would that change the way
2: you view the world around you and Mm. you know yeah I mean I guess violence on plantations would be a normal just it would just be normalized Mm. yeah and so he raised the level of violence by kind of like murder mm. as in a murder spree yeah but I, it probably was quite a small
1: leap mm. yeah I think the kind of the cult, the cultural social barrier that we have against perpetrating violence today mm. would not have existed in the same way then yeah because yes violence on plantations was normalized but was wasn't that against black bodies with the leap yeah. to perpetrating it against white bodies, wouldn't that be quite high? I don't know. Because yeah. I, I cannot imagine the state of mind mm. um, or even the, the kind of the cultural, social...
2: Yeah, I mean, I guess it may have just felt... It may have felt just mm. to kind of flip the script.
1: Yeah, because mm. again, like, Killmonger, just to go back to, yeah. to that, it's, it's that, you know, he, he was very obviously a CIA plant. He was sent in to destabilise Wakanda. Mm. But his anger was valid yeah and certainly from the response to killmonger online from the <laughs> response that anger and the way that it was openly portrayed mm. was certainly something that spoke to a lot of people yeah from the outside looking in her.
2: it's just i guess his anger is entirely justifiable i guess where we start to sort of have a bit a few more questions is how can you kind of turn that anger into something constructive what is constructive I guess that's the mm. that's where the question
1: how do you approach the anger because it's yes. got to go somewhere because
2: anger is an entirely valid emotion you can mm. do several fantastic things with that anger yeah it, it you you know, can
1: feel you it's, exactly you can use it to move forward so into the, non-violent yeah. endeavors but
2: so the question is did, is that anger? Does that anger fuel you, or is it ultimately self-destructive? Mm. And I think in the case of Killmonger, there are varying debates on that. Mm. People are kind of like falling on either side, and they still people are still siding with Killmonger's actions mm. online, etc. Mm-hmm. Because it was like I mean that got it.
1: I mean, certainly the idea of perhaps Wakanda taking over the world and forming a utopia that's, that in and of itself, I could, I could get behind that. But I think what I personally thought was very clear is that that was not really Killmonger's plan.
2: He was a neo-imperialist mm. disguised as a black liberationist. That's mm. that's what he was. Yeah, in my opinion, the fact that this is even a plotline in a blockbuster film oh, yeah, yeah. is
0: quite astonishing. Mm. Like to think that I mean, what five, ten, twenty years ago would you have seen a plot line like that Mm-mm. in something no. that is a kind of not
2: not a specialist film but something that's yeah. entirely mainstream. Yeah, you know,
1: entirely mainstream. mainstream. It had a massive budget. It yeah. wasn't a shoestring production by two yeah, students. Crazy. Yeah, crazy. Yeah. But it was amazing. Yeah. <laughs> I just... Love it. Let's <laughs> get that out of the way. So I, I, I don't know if you guys know this, but Kyle Baker is actually like a really well-known mm. comic book illustrator. Mm. And he he's done Deadpool, X-Men, Justice League. But he also did a Captain America book, That was called Truth, Red, White and Black and it was basically the story of the black Captain America who Mm. predates Steve Rogers. Mm -hmm. He was a black soldier and the company was taken to a camp in the middle of nowhere in America and they were illegally experimented on. So it was very much modelled on the syphilis experiments in the Mm. Tuskegee camps. Can Um, I explain
0: a little bit more about that for not everyone's going to know?
1: Well, basically... um, at some point, the American government just started randomly illegally experimenting on people and gave them syphilis and just kind of wanted to see what would happen to someone who was living with syphilis. The history of illegally experimenting on black bodies without people's consent is vast in the American um, landscape. There's a, there's a term for that, it's called medical apartheid, um, and that also talks about the way that black bodies are still not um, considered autonomous mm. uh, w- within medical discourse. That's all very complicated. But basically, it's a really interesting, interesting story. Um, The black cats in America who predates Steve Rogers. And there's a lot of uh, really interesting stuff in there, especially how they kind of address the fact that, one, it was very obviously sacrificing black bodies to make something safe for white bodies to consume. That's Mm. kind of explicit throughout the text, but also kind of raises the point where Steve Rogers is kind of, you know, an Aryan god, Mm. blonde-haired, blue-eyed, super Mm. strong, all this kind of thing. And Kyle Baker handles that really well, the artwork in that is, is, is really good. So I would recommend everyone who likes superhero comics to read it. But also, and I've ordered this book on Amazon because I read the synopsis from a, a review someone left on Amazon. I'm going to just read it out, you can cut it however you like. But he wrote a comic book called Birth of a Nation, a comic. East St. Louis, a largely black city where the garbage is not picked up, there is lead in the soil and probably water. There's crumbling infrastructure, substandard schools, and a lack of jobs. After the presidential election is thrown up for grabs, a Bush-like candidate wins because hundreds of people in East St. Louis had been denied the vote because they were incorrectly told they were felons on election day. Outraged at their disenfranchisement, the mayor decides to secede from the USA. He establishes the country of Blackland. You can find it on Amazon. It cost me six quid. I I can't wait. can't wait to read this.
0: So those are good recommendations for anyone who enjoyed sort Nat Turner and wants yes, to get into that. Yes, um,
1: basically. We'll put some stuff in the yeah, show notes. all the links stuff. in the sh- in the show notes. <laughs> so basically, I just thought that's beautiful. That's awesome. Let me read that. Right I also now. really like the name Blackland. It's great, isn't it? <laughs> it's awesome. It's, a, it's it's a good name. Um, but yeah, sorry, go, go on. No, no, right. I was
0: just gonna say. So, do you want to or, do the favourite
1: bit? Do you want to do my favourite bit? No, no, the bit. favourite bits is it, the right it, word, it, but like yeah. bits
0: that particularly caught your attention or made you feel
1: strongly about it. Or... Um, so, it is very hard to kind of talk about favourite sections here. Uh, it, it's hard to talk about enjoying reading the novel mm. as well because it's so difficult, but certainly um i think that the opening in particular is very very strong so if you open the book you have a preface and all this if if you get the the library edition library copy that we have it kind of starts on page 11 and there's no narration and there's a lot of kind of again zooming in on facial expressions to tell a whole story um between all these different characters in a village that we assume very early on is Africa but non-descript we don't know where or what exactly and um, they get attacked by slavery raids and there's just there's a lot of energy a lot of violence that happens straight away and it's really sort of this kind of idyllic village life that's interrupted mm-hmm. blown apart and the violence is so consistent ever after that so there are no more moments of peace after these very few opening panels But, you know, there's a lot of resistance and fighting in these panels as well. So you you have the the villagers fighting back against their raiders, fleeing and escaping, trying to hide their children. And it's just such an active, strong sequence Mm. that just grabs you straight away. I think the, the first moment that to me was really kind of grabbing me by the throat was the sequence where you have a lady who's running away from the slavers, um, she's running through the jungle, running through the jungle, and then she comes across a big, deep chasm, a cliff. She looks behind her and she sees them coming, and there's a close-up of her face, the determination, and she she jumps off, and then you see a kind of panel where she's in freefall, where she's floating, and it's an idea of freedom, Very, very obviously this idea of freedom, liberation, of throwing yourself off the edge of the world to be free and then the very next panel is just a lasso a loop about to close over her ankle when they catch her mm. and there is something just really inherently devastating about that particular panel I think
0: funnily enough that was the exact panel that I was going to choose as mine <laughs> that's what I'd written down so you've, you've got that from me yeah I said there's something about a single moment being so symbolic, that split second between freedom and being then yeah. trapped.
1: Because because if 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 she'd reached that cliff just a bit sooner, if she'd jumped just a bit sooner, if or or if if she'd veered off and hidden, um I mean obviously if those guys had decided not to attack the village at all, but this split second catastrophically destroying your your freedom, mm. your liberty, your happiness.
2: It's just struck me as well, kind of the fact that obviously there is no text. In these mm. early panels and obviously that's because the the entire text that is used in the graphic novel is taken from his confessions but i think it also speaks to this idea that there is this entire history that starts in africa that we just we we do not ever get and so Carl baker is doing the best thing that he can to mm. kind of illustrate perhaps mm. what was going on there but actually like so much is just undocumented and unwritten and there's just so many gaps and I yeah. think like because sort of the rest of the, the graphic novel is quite text heavy I mean mm. in certain places you get massive chunks of, of text yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but those kind of opening pages there's just none in and it's like massive stark contrast it is so definitely I just that was worth yeah I,
1: I think that's an interesting point because I mean, up until very recently there were no surviving accounts of people who had been kidnapped. Um recently, Nora Zeal Hurston's interview with um, Zora Neal. Yes, uh, Zora Neale. You said Nora Zil. <laughs> oh, Zora Neil Hurston. <laughs> yes. Um, who interviewed um The last the last uh, slave who'd actually been captured on mm. African soil. That's recently been well, she published it but then couldn't find anyone to publish it. Yeah, she kind of got
2: blackboarded a little bit. So she wrote this book in the 20s, Mm -hmm. I believe, um, and it just got published in, like, last month.
1: So considering how how much time there is between then and now, um, the fact that we only very recently have this singular account as well, a very singular, very specific account. So there's so much that's lost and there are no words. We literally literally have no words in these panels that describe that kind of experience. That's a, re- that's a really good point.
2: And the thing is, it's not that far, it's not that long ago. Like I sat down with my grandma when I went to see her in April and we traced her family tree. And I'm five generations away from slavery. So we traced her family tree back to um, a woman who was born into slavery called Men. don't ask me what the names are like, who then went on to marry a Scottish man. So my grandma's saying, oh, she married this Scottish man. And I'm like, I mm, okay, grandma, I don't know about marry, but okay. Given that she she was born into slavery and then we think that her parents came from sort of what is now Ghana, but we don't know. That, that's not that far away. No. Five generations is nothing. That's not, that's,
1: that's nothing. That's nothing. That's nothing, yeah. nothing at all. Yeah. If, if you think about it, that's two generations away from your grandmother. Yeah. Who yeah. is alive, who is, who yeah. exists on this world still within living memory that's insane yeah so it's crazy that it's it's
2: like it's not like it's ancient history but the sort of lack of documentation makes it feel makes it entirely inaccessible
1: and the way that we also don't properly properly teach it we don't tell our children about it it's almost like like certain forces, whiteness or whatever you want to call it are actively trying to distance it
2: yeah I think it's entirely deliberate Mm. And I think that it's because having sort of making that history accessible doesn't play into this sort of ideal of Britain as this kind of amazing place it yeah. just doesn't work with the narrative right so i i think it's entirely deliberate mm.
1: the the very consciously crafted illusion of the british empire as a force for good and civilization yeah, yeah. <laughs> um doesn't really stand up to actor slave narratives right cuz you can pretend that it was the americans doing it as much as you want <laughs> but the, Brit- the british started it mate like you can <laughs> yeah. you can feel what you want um oh, i course. mean that's
0: i mean that's an interesting thing in itself about the fact that when you do talk about it in school it's very much from an american context yes and it's like which again is also entirely deliberate i think mm. yeah
1: so they they did it yeah over there exactly like nice. we started but we came to our senses yeah. and then they kept doing it because they were evil yeah and that's like the only reason it stopped in britain or that people started complaining against it in britain is because it was financially speaking more beneficial for America to have slaves than it was for Britain. For Britain, it was not becoming cost-effective enough. No. So they started campaigning against it, and then once they uh, abolished slavery, they started actively trying to get the Americans to do it because they recognised that America was being built on the back of slaves, and they were trying to sabotage America's economic growth. Mm. Like, it was not a moral thing at all, if we can kind of let go of that illusion. So I'm certain that several people within the slave movement did believe that it was amoral and that they did it out of Moral conviction, oh, yeah, but the massive backing eventually from government was, was a financial mm-hmm. concern, yeah.
2: which definitely. is why slave owners received compensation upon yeah. the abolishment of slavery. If you because believe... they weren't worried about, oh no, this is all of a sudden really the wrong thing to do, and I feel so terrible. No, it was financial, which is why former enslaved mm-hmm. people got nothing, yeah. and their former slave, the former owners, were the ones who were receiving payouts.
1: Yeah, because like that's the thing. If if you genuinely believe that slavery is wrong. And you are in power. You tell people you can't do it anymore and you take the slaves away and you free them. Yeah. The end. But if you give people money for it, that's an acknowledgement of something.
2: Yeah, I mean, it exposes motives.
1: Yeah, yeah. definitely. Yeah. It is, it is really interesting how it kind of gets twisted um, throughout the years. So, Leanne, can you think of a very fascinating bit that really spoke to you? From... I also really like...
0: <laughs> <laughs> interesting. I wonder whether, like i don't know for me like i wanted to um know more about her because she was a woman and then i was kind of sad when we left her and we were
2: done yeah that's 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 really interesting so we don't kind of get a gendered perspective at all in this novel (laughs) um and so like the novel that i was talking about earlier marlon james's the book of night women is entirely about the gendered experience of (laughs) slavery and it and it's like explicit in how it deals with gendered violence etc this doesn't I mean there's kind of there's very little women there's here. very little aside from the woman at the beginning and, and then kind of women
1: dotted around yeah mm. his reference to his mother when yeah. his father finally tries to escape um, and leaves him and his mother behind but there's very very little mm. female characters in there it's interesting because I don't I don't know a lot about the rebellion itself just makes me wonder were there any women involved in the violence like in this one in, not not in this book but in the real okay, rebellion yeah
2: so I think popular narrative would, mm. would kind of have you believe that the majority of the perpetrators of kind of like violent slave rebellions were men
1: it's a it. yes yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um it, it is entirely
2: I would say it's entirely untrue I mean in the Caribbean you have for example a woman called nanny of the maroons who was enslaved in jamaica who led like a massive um slave rebellion and they kind of they said she was like an obia woman so she was like magic and in some of the um accounts written by the europeans they say that she would catch bullets with her bum cheeks and like <laughs> them back and stuff like super crazy stuff but basically and now nanny maroon is like a jamaican national hero because she's awesome like yeah, she really did that she the amazing yeah so it Women were definitely involved, however, we lack historical documentation generally when it comes mm. to slavery. Mm. I think particularly when it comes to slave revolts, because of their contentious nature, there's just a lot that's missing. What we also do know is that slave women weren't necessarily passive. Mm. Um, they would have access to their masters' houses more so than the men, which means that they would mm. be involved in acts sort of, of petty marinage, small acts mm. of rebellion. Um, so, like, slow poisoning, crapping in people's food, etc, etc. So, I mean, they would even also give themselves abortions yeah. to stop themselves from creating more slaves for these people, which, again, is a massive act of resistance and rebellion.
1: Yeah. Tony Morrison has Beloved, where someone who's escaped slavery mm. is about to be captured. Kills one of her children yeah. to prevent them from going into slavery. Yeah, and I remember reading there was an account written by a white dude about his the plantation that he owned, and he talks about how catching slaves had become illegal. Mm. So in order for him to make his plantation sustainable, he had to encourage his slaves to have loads yes. of children because that was the only kind of way he could maintain yeah. the plantation. And he writes about the complete struggle of getting black women to have their children, and he's he, he's like doing like women are getting medals when they have a baby they get (laughs) extra privileges they get extra food they don't have to do any hard labor they get nicer clothes nicer accommodations nothing's working Mm. and women are even like actively aborting their children but that's again like very few narratives survive of of women doing that
2: yeah i think it's just very few narratives survive Mm. full stop so there is documentation of these things happening but again with kind of women sort of um, taking ownership of their reproduction, can that be proved? Mm. And that therefore would, you know, these kind of masters of the plantations would think it was happening, and I'm sure it was happening, but how far can you go
1: to actually prove that? Yeah, that's a very good point yeah. to make. Because there's, yeah, there's, there's no documentation. There's, yeah. there's no first-person narratives. And no. of course it wouldn't have been politically expedient for escaped slaves to write about doing that. No, that's so true. Then, so then there's the question of, that kind of... Uh... yeah,
2: And this is why neo-slave narratives like Kyle Baker's Nat Turner are so important because actually, in the face of this lack of documentation, it is imperative that we take these imaginative leaps to fill in the gaps. that like we kind of just have to do it. Otherwise, so many stories get lost. Mm. I think that's why neo-slave, neo-slave narratives keep being written and mm. they keep being read mm. because they're just
1: so important. So we have quite a few recommendations that have come up during this podcast and we'll put them all in the show notes for you so you can have a go and and read if you are interested so thank you very much leanne for joining us
0: thanks for having me and thank you to everyone tuned in
1: uh you can find out more information about the monthly recommendations page and today's comic uh, via the links in the show notes as well
0: and remember if you'd like to provide us with any feedback please feel free to send us an email at wgipodcast at gmail.com
1: Our next uh, graphic novel is going to be Sally Heathcote's Suffragette. So get reading and we will be with you again in November.